welcome to the On The Whistle podcast. It's our favorite time of the year, aka World Cup season. Yes, the Women's World Cup is just around the corner. We've got four big African nations representing our continent, South Africa, Zambia, Morocco, Nigeria. And as always, On The Whistle podcast has the best interviews and analysis on the continent. We will be bringing you over the next couple of weeks interviews with players, coaches, and analysts to preview the Women's World Cup. And of course, we will be bringing you content throughout the World Cup as the teams strive to win the World Cup and do one better than Morocco did in the Men's World Cup in Qatar. Coming up first, we have a huge interview, an interview that I had a couple week, a couple days ago with Nigeria's head coach, Randy Waldron, who led the Super Falcons to the AFCON last year and is hoping to lead them to success in Australia and New Zealand. Stay tuned for our first part of our World Cup series. Randy, it's just a couple weeks ahead of the World Cup. How are you doing? How are you feeling today? Well, I'm, I'm doing great. I mean, considering everything, you know, we're doing as well as can be expected and, you know, excited about it. It's been a long time waiting and, um, you know, excited to jump on a plane on Sunday and head out to Australia and, and um, you know, just really ready for the games to begin. I can, I can imagine. I mean, it's yeah, been such a long time for you, kind of having joined not too long after the last World Cup, building up to this. But I mean, before before we get into the World Cup and building that, you know, we want to hear a bit about you, kind of cast our eyes back. You know, tell us a little bit about yourself. How how did you get into football? How did you get into coaching women's football? You know, who who is Randy Waldrum? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, it's obviously going to be a little bit different story than you're used to because of where football was in the U.S. and where it has come from and where it is now. So when I was a young boy, um, you know, I grew up in my early years playing baseball. There was no football. Like, we didn't know what football was. So I was really – got into the game late. I was 12 years old, and a Swedish gentleman by the name of Eric Nordstrom had moved to my city, and he was at our local community recreation center – and was trying to start a, you know, we call it soccer league mm -hmm. uh, in my hometown of Irving, Texas. And I was just walking down the hall and he grabbed me and said, hey, well, you want to sign up for soccer? I go, I don't know. What is it? He said, you know, and he kind of explained it. And I said, sure. And, um, you know, so it, it, so a late starter, you know, it was like I said, I was 12 years old and I just fell in love with it immediately because in baseball, to be quite honest, I, I felt like it was just a lot of standing around, you know, and I was kind of these hyper kid, always wanting to be, you know, in action. So it was perfect for me. I loved it. I excelled at it, you know, right at the beginning and, uh, and never looked back. So I got real fortunate to cross his path. He's kind of like the godfather of soccer in my, my hometown. Uh, and then I had the good fortune of, of, uh, being coached in my high school days, um, by a, a coach from Mexico named Simon Sanchez. And he probably was the single largest influence in my football career, just not only as a great coach, great way with young people and a great way of teaching his methodology, I thought was fantastic. Um, but he gave me my real passion, you know, uh, up until then I played it because I liked it, but that's when we started to learn about it and how big it was and, how it was growing in the U.S. and how big it was on the world stage. He just really gave me my love for the game. And so I went off to a university system that we have here in the U.S., played at a small school uh, called Midwestern State University, played there four years and then was drafted. We have a, unlike England, you know, we have a professional draft like we do in American football. So I was drafted in the third round by a team out in Los Angeles uh, called the Los Angeles Skyhawks. I went out and played. Most of the season there, got traded to a team in Indianapolis, played there at Indianapolis. And then about that time, the leagues folded in the U.S. The old NASL where play came in and played, it folded. I was in the other league called the ASL, the American Soccer League. It folded. So then at this point, it was kind of um, if you wanted to stay in the game, the only way to make a living staying in the game was to coach either at a high school or a university, uh, you know, we didn't have the club, the club set structure wasn't in place at that time in the U.S. So I had kind of already prepared for life after playing and, and my degree was in education. 
So I went straight from the pro leagues into teaching at a, at, ironically at the same high school that I went to as a student and um, coached there five years um, and coached on the men's side. Back then, everything I was involved with was on the men's side. I left there, took a college job at my first university job at the University of Tulsa and coached the men. But that was the first time, that was late 1989, that was the first time that I had to coach or got to coach women. That job involved being the men's coach and the women's coach at the same time. And then I kind of just fell in love with the women's game, probably more so because two things. One is I always aspired. I wanted to coach at the highest level I could. And at that time, there were no women's pro leagues around in the U.S. Uh, so my thought was with the national teams, getting involved with U.S. soccer and being involved in the national team. In the women's side of it, the pathway looked much more clear than it did on the men's side because the men's programs had been around for a long time. And, uh, and then the other piece of it is I felt like the, the women, the players themselves were just so hungry for good coaches and for in information and knowledge. Whereas at the university level on the men's side, you know, you're dealing with 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 year old men. And they kind of at that age felt like they knew it, you know, like you didn't have the impact, you know, that you could on the women's. So the next job I took was at Baylor University. I left Tulsa and went to Baylor University, and that was to begin and start a women's program. They didn't have one, but there was no men's program. So that's when I made the leap into the women's side. And along the way, I was just involved with U.S. soccer, not only through my coaching license, but after my license, I became an instructor for coaching education. So now I was teaching our A and our B and our C license. Uh, which opened the door for me with some of the national team programs. And so over the, over my career, I've worked with our U18 national teams, which is now U19s. Back then it was U18s. I worked with our, with Lauren Gregg. Um, uh, with the, she was the head coach of the U21. So I came in and assisted her. Of course, now that's U23s. Um, and then worked some with getting kind of as just helping out in camps with our senior team when Tony, uh, DeChico was the head coach there. And even a couple of times when Pia came in, she brought me up, you know, with the senior team. So, uh, and then I eventually took over the U23s. Or, of course, still it was the U21s when I had them, but I took over them for a couple of years as a head coach. So kind of got my feet wet there. Um, went to the, had changed universities to the University of Notre Dame, which is, is one of the most prestigious universities in the U.S. Um Took them, we won two national championships. We played in eight final, what we call final fours, uh, played in five national championship games. I mean, we had it really going. And along the way, a good friend of mine, uh, Lincoln Phillips from Trinidad and Tobago, we had known each other from uh, our time with U.S. soccer. He was the general secretary of Trinidad and Tobago. So I came in and he hired me to come in to coach the U-17s to try to get them through a World Cup. Um, so I did that for, you know, uh, maybe a year with, with them. And then a few years later, his son, Sheldon Phillips, became the general secretary. And he brought me in to try to bring Trinidad and Tobago's senior team into the World Cup that was in, held in Canada. And unfortunately, we lost in the very last leg of, um, of that. We were the last team out or we would have been the last team in Ecuador. We, we tied on the road to Ecuador at Quito, and then we came back home. And I think we, we gave up a goal in the 92nd minute off of a free kick uh, to not qualify. So, uh, but, you know, getting that experience too with, with the senior national team uh, always kind of drove me, you know, to continue to want to do more. And of course, always envisioned being able to take a team to a world cup and, of course, I went on and coached in the pro league here in the U.S. for three or four years and then kind of came back to the to the college. And I came back to the university here at Pitt in 2018 at a time that, in, in reality, President Pinnock in Nigeria wanted to hire me uh, in 2018 for Nigeria back then. But because it took the communication was so poor, you know, I think it even came out in the media that I was hired in, in Nigeria and it came out in the papers and yet nobody from Nigeria had ever talked to me. 
So I kept waiting. This was around September of 2018. Um, my phone was blowing up saying, hey, we heard you got hired. Congratulations. And I'm like, guys, I don't know. I, you know, I'm reading it like you, but nobody has spoken. So it went from September to November, never hearing a word me trying to contact President Pinnock, never getting a response. So with the job at Pitt came open, I said, well, I've got, got to do something. So I took it. Then he, he called and said, you know, hey, don't take the job. And it said, no, it's too late. I'm, you know, I've made this commitment. So I think Thomas Dennerby then took him over to, the, to that World Cup in 2019. And then after Thomas left, uh, Nigeria called back to see if I would do it. And at that time, I'd already been studying up on Nigeria and I knew the horror stories of, you know, not paying coaches and players and all of that stuff that went on. So I told them I would only do it, but I was going to keep, you know, my position at Pitt and had a great athletic director, have a great athletic director here at Pitt that allowed me to do both. And, and um, so that's kind of how I got back into it. So, you know, from there that's, you know, we've moved forward. Yeah. And, and how, how have you found that kind of being in that weird, that kind of space where you're, you know, obviously, you know, U.S. collegiate football is at a really, really high standard and you probably right. would be the equivalent of being professional here at, kind yeah. of in Europe. But right. then like managing both, you know, a club, quote unquote, club team, a collegiate team right. and doing the national team. Like, how is that juggling that in terms of workload? It kind of, I, yeah. I can't even imagine how much work that must be. No, it's a, it's a huge workload, but honestly, the only way, and the only reason I agreed to do it is my son, uh, Ben, uh, is my associate, what we call an associate head coach. So it's kind of like, it's not an assistant head coach. It's kind of like a, a second head coach. We both kind of are co-head coaches basically. And, since obviously being my son and he's worked with me with Trinidad and he was with me at Notre Dame when we won, won a national championship, he know, we think our football ideas are the same. So if it would have been anybody else on my staff at Pitt, I probably couldn't have done both. Uh, but I can leave things and put the time into Nigeria. And we knew it was going to be this, even though two years is a long time, it's still kind of in the grand scheme of things. It's a, it's a, a manageable window. And uh, so he handles everything here at Pitt, you know, when I'm away and it's, it's, we've done really well. We've taken this program from being a losing 22 years of losing to a program now that's in the top 15 in the U S you know, so, um, so he's done a great job and that's the only way I can do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, that's a relief that you have, have someone like that to, to help you out. I, I didn't realize that, but right. you know, and how have you found, you know, obviously, you know, yeah, in terms of the quality, like we said, that, you know, collegiates, you've, you've been coaching at a super high level for a very, right. very long time. But in terms of, you know, how have you found going from, you know, college football, obviously, there's eyes on it, there's eyeballs, there's attention. But, yeah. you know, compared to suddenly being the head coach of a country with, you know, however many tens of millions fans, and, you know, particularly in an African context, probably the only country that is so invested in women's football. I don't think there's any other country on the continent, even few in the world that have such right. a big passion for the Super Falcons like they do in Nigeria. You know, how is that kind of stepping into not just a different continent, but kind of culturally a different world in terms of the yeah. attention, the football, everything? How have you found that? Yeah, well, I think anytime you take on these kind of projects, you have to understand there's gonna be a lot of scrutiny, you know, and a lot of media attention. And unfortunately, those that you usually hear from are, are, are the negative ones. You know, you don't have a lot of positive people, you know, messaging you or reaching out saying, hey, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. It's usually, you know, hey, you're terrible. Can't wait till you leave. You know, that kind of thing. So you have to just understand you got to have big shoulders. and You have to understand um, you, you can't really <clears throat> let that affect you. You know, I, I don't. Honestly, I don't do much media at all there. Um, I don't read, you know, the stuff that's out and, and, you know, I know it's there. I'm aware of it, but I don't, I don't waste my time and energy worrying about the millions of people and what they think of me in Nigeria. I know I have a job to do. Right. And, and, you know, I'm, as a, as a coach in any sport, you're the one that sees the day in and day out and you know why things happen a certain way. And of course, you know, we all have to, as a coach, I have to take responsibility of our results. Our players have to take responsibilities, but there's also a big piece of it where, you know, your federation has to take some responsibility too. So I think that's the one thing that's 
probably doesn't get out there that I found in Africa is there's so many things that can go on within the Federation that people there just seem to accept and they don't ever question. Whereas here in the U.S., the culture is completely different. It is scrutinized just like it is in Africa, you know, our women's national team. But everybody knows what's going on with the Federation. Mm -hmm. And they know, you know, if there's money, they, you know, there's accountability. You know, like our Federation has to be very open and public about where they're spending their dollars, much like I'm sure it is in England with the national team there. Like you can't. You know, you can't get around things there here. You know, it's it's just um, every everybody's accountable, and doesn't mean our federation here is answering the media every day because they don't get involved in that. Um, but there is a level of accountability um, that the media here seems to know more of the whole workings, not just what the coach is doing. And I've kind of found that in Africa, where it doesn't seem like there anybody questions what the federation does and and um i don't think there's honestly enough pressure from the 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 people in nigeria on the federation to start doing things the right way and start answering questions of why things are done the way they're done you know they just look at their teams whether it be the super eagles or the super falcons they look at their teams and they just as a passionate country they just look at it as its results either you're a good coach because you won or you're a bad coach because you don't. And the players are good players if they win and they're not, if they don't. And, you know, that's just, it's only look at it from that standpoint and, and they don't really have a deep understanding of what goes on behind the scenes that sometimes can hamstring your opportunity to have success. And so it's taken some time to culturally adapt. And, you know, the hardest, the hardest thing for me, quite honestly, was coming in, Coming from the U.S., which is obviously, you know, going for its third World Cup in a row, so it has to be considered, you know, one of the best, if not the best teams in the world. Hmm. Uh, although I know there's a lot of countries that'll argue that, and, and we'll see because there's a lot of countries worthy of that title too now. Um, but I had hoped that one of the reasons they brought me in was to help implement some change in the way they do business. And that I could have instituted some change for our players, you know, where they're getting paid regularly and they're not sitting overnight at airports waiting on a, a connecting leg just because it was a cheaper flight, you know, like let's get them on a flight that gets them with the least amount of connections and time at the airport to our destination. And I, I was hoping I was going to be able to help influence and, and some change. And unfortunately, that's not the case. The NFF is not interested in that. Um, and that's if I have a disappointment, that's been my one big disappointment. And that's why, I re, you know, I recently have spoken out a little bit about some of the things that are going on is because, um, you know, once this is over and I leave, um, you know, you'd like to think you had a small piece of influence and in way things are done for the future. So that's probably been my biggest disappointment. Um you know, obviously we'd like to have better results, but I'm sure you and I'll get into that in a little bit here in our conversation. But, um, you know, that's that's probably the biggest cultural aspect that I've had to deal with. Mm, absolutely. And, and you know, just on that, you know, talking about the Federation, you're saying, you know, one of the reasons why you stuck stuck with that job and it with Pitt was that kind of security as well. Yeah. You know, ha and we know the players, obviously, you know, at the, you know, for, for the listeners who don't know at the last women's AFCON, you know, after the semifinal, they went on strike for a couple of days because they weren't right. getting paid, you know, right. throughout your time with Nigeria, do you mind me asking, have you been paid every time have you has that all been on your end sorted out have you yeah. had any issues in that regard oh it's been nothing but a constant issue i mean no. up until about three weeks ago um i have been owed 14 months of salary uh up wow. until about three weeks ago and in three weeks ago they paid seven months of uh -huh. that salary to catch me up before that the year and a half two years before that the salary it was the same thing. I'd go five, six months without anything, and then they'd pay you a little bit of it. And mm -hmm. then, you know, the same thing. So starting July, we'll be eight months, you know, behind in salary. And I think we still have players that look, we, we still have players that haven't been paid uh, per diem and bonuses for two years ago when we came to America and played in the summer series against 
the U.S. and Portugal and Jamaica and those. We still have players that haven't been caught up to speed with that. You know, um, the players, my understanding is the players got paid finally um, many months later for AFCON. But um, the other events that we've been at, you know, they haven't, haven't. They haven't been paid. So it's, it's a travesty. And, you know, I, I, and let me say this. The one big difference I would tell you with the players that in, in, in Nigeria versus the U.S. In the U.S., players here would die, probably like England, would die to get selected to come into a camp. And the honor of putting the jersey on is more important than anything. It's more important than their, their clubs, their NWSL clubs, or wherever they're playing. The national team takes precedence. Like, it's such a prideful thing. And I think what I've learned in Nigeria is the players love playing for the country, right? They're, they have that pride of playing for Nigeria. But they don't have that pride like the U.S. players where it means everything to them to get selected, you know? And I think a lot of that is due to the way they're treated. You know, they, their clubs treat them better than they get treated when they get called into a national team. I mean, I could tell you the horror stories of many of our trips where a day before we're leaving, players are going, coach, my ticket, they got me flying to this airport, and then I have to spend the night in the airport, <laughs> connect the next morning, and, and, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me, you know? And and yet there's no money for a hotel or any – I mean, um, you know, they come, they don't get their bonuses for wins. They come, they don't get a daily per diem. So it's, it's almost like some players will not come into a call-up and say that they're injured or say they have a, a, a conflict um, just for that reason. You know, they want to come for AFCON, you know, they want to come for a World Cup, but all the international friendlies, you have to you have to learn to kind of sort through, you know, and that's why I follow all the players very closely with their club teams to know who really is in, in an injury situation, who's not, and those kind of things. So it's it's just a different mentality of playing for your country. Not that they don't want to play because they do take a lot of pride in playing for their country. And obviously, uh, you know, playing for their country in a world cup is extremely prideful, but, um, but that year in and year out in those off years, it's not that same kind of pride that it is in the U S. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a, in terms of, you know, I think examples across football history of players doing that when, when there isn't a great setup, you know, yeah. When it's right. not a big, big international game, you know, Fake, yeah. kind of feigning an injury or something but I mean I know there's been kind of one of the things there's been a lot of kind of negativity in terms of the the way that the team has been covered and the press and the coverage around the team I, I kind of I also want to give this opportunity though you know you've seen these players you've been with them for you know three years now uh, almost you know have there been you know players during this time that you actually can turn to and say look actually these players have stood up you know, I'm immensely proud of the way they've dealt with this because this is an incredibly difficult situation uh, for them as well, you know. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of negativity, but I also want to give you a chance to say, you know, these are the players who've really stood up and, you know, I'm actually very proud of the way they've developed and they've kind of stood up for these things. You know, have there been any players who've really impressed you over these years? Yeah, they, they've done that. You know, when I first took on the job, they had just come, you know, they had just come out of the World Cup and, and, I guess the, the following year, getting ready to qualify for the Olympics, that kind of thing, is about the time Thomas left. And, you know, Desire Opernozi is one that spoke out at the World Cup very strongly. And she was the captain. She should have spoken out, you know, for her teammates. But she spoke out. Now, I wasn't around. That was before my time. But she spoke out about not getting paid and all the issues that they were going through. And they dismissed her from the team. So when I first got in, you know, I called her into camp and they wouldn't let me, you mm -hmm. know, the president had dismissed her. They didn't like the way she went to the public and went to the media and, you know, kind of the, the stance that they took, you know, and, and she was the leader, kind of the leader of the pack. So she's the one that got punished. So I'm really proud of her. I convinced the president later on, maybe six or eight months into my tenure to let us bring her back. And, and um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really, she's one that I'm really proud of. And she was, she was doing, the right thing and she was doing what her job called for her to do being a captain you know Asisat Oshwala is one I can always turn to and talk to and she's very um 
good about standing up and going to the Federation and discussing. Now, she's not one that's going to go out publicly and, you know, do that publicly, but she's one that's willing to go in and butt heads and say what she believes and what the players need. And she's a very strong voice in there with us as well. Uh, our captain right now, Anome, uh, uh, Evie, you know, has played in five World Cups. This will be her six. She's got a good, strong voice within the Federation too. Um, so I, those players I'm, I'm really proud of. And then with what happened at AFCON, and, and I will share this in just a second, the irony of the whole situation, but our one of our goalkeepers, Tochi, uh, stood up in the, in the meeting when they were boycotting and spoke her mind, and they dismissed her. You know, they didn't like that. And she didn't go public. This was said in the confines of a team meeting room, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's taken me, after AFCON, she was not allowed into any of the other camps. We missed, well, we didn't have a November camp. We She missed the February camp. She missed the April camp. Um, so she hasn't been in anything with us since AFCON uh, until we didn't get to go to Mexico with us, didn't go to Turkey with us. Um, didn't come to the U.S. Um, so I finally convinced them to let her back in, but she had to write a letter of apology and, you know, all of these things. And that, and so, yes, these are some players, you know, those four, I, I can tell you, speak out and speak for the team and really, really proud of them. The others, to be honest, I think, have seen what's happened to them and they fear coming out publicly, you know, because they've seen an example of you speak out publicly, you get dismissed. And the irony of all this is people don't realize this. And I just kind of took the heat. I've always kept the NFF out of it. You know, like at AFCON, I thought our players were brilliant in the Morocco game, going two players down with 30 minutes left in regulation. I don't know any other coach, any other team on the men or women's side in a, in a, in a, um, championship format, you know, in such a, an important event. Um, I can't think of anybody, you know, I've seen teams go a player down and, and get through it, but to go two players down, we went 30 minutes, a little over 30 minutes in regulation, still stayed tied, actually got a goal with the player, one of the players down. Um, and then we had to go 30 minutes of extra time, you know, so we played over 60 minutes with nine players and got it you know, got it to penalties. And um, so I thought it was just this heroic effort by the, the players. I thought as a, as a staff, the subs and the things I did were, were right to get us that. And it gave us a chance. Now we lost in penalties, but penalties are penalties, right? So, but it gave us the opportunity. So even though I'm disappointed because now we're not going to win AFCON, right? But you're still proud of the team effort. There's sometimes these things happen in games that you you can't control. And quite frankly, I thought it was two really poor soft calls, you know, of stepping on a foot. Um, but it happened and, and and that's where we were. But what most people didn't realize back home is right after that match, the players decided to boycott because they hadn't been paid. They wouldn't come out of their room. You know, I'm oh. meeting with them and I'm telling them I'm getting on the bus. We need to go train. We need recovery. You played 60 minutes, two players down like, these next two days recoveries were vital mm. but, and they wouldn't. So on the one hand, I'm disappointed in them because we still have a third place match to play. The other hand, I understand it, you know, and I support them that they want to stand up for themselves. Um, so for the next two days, three days, whatever it was in between before we played Zambia, we didn't get on the field one time. We didn't go into a meeting room one time to do a scout, to do a team plan or prep for Zambia. And then we, you know, then we play, then the Federation finally flies a few people in uh, the night before we played Zambia. We played Zambia like a 4 p.m. afternoon match. The night before, around 10 p.m., the people from the Federation came in, brought some money. They wanted, they called a team meeting. They wanted to have a discussion about what was going on. And so they came in, kind of explained what was happening, um, and then um, gave them some money, not all of their money, but gave them enough to pacify the players to get them to play the Zambia game. And then they opened it up for questions. And in that conversation, Tochi spoke up 
And basically, I was in the meeting. I heard it word for word. Basically, what she was saying is that the excuses you're giving us are the excuses you, we've always been given. And she said, I've been in this program since I was, I think, 17 years old. And she said, I'm not a child anymore. You know, I'm adult. I have family. I have responsibilities. And so you're telling us these things are happening and we're not kids. Like we've heard this, you know, and that's pretty much the way she said it. She didn't, wasn't yelling. She wasn't calling and singling anybody out. They asked for input from the team and she gave her input. Well, they didn't like the way she said it and, and dismissed her. And so the irony of that is the Federation caused the problem because they didn't pay the players. The Federation called a meeting of the players to have a discussion and asked them to discuss it. And then she says something and they don't like it and they dismiss her. I mean, how, like, I couldn't get them to see big picture. Like, how is that her fault? We caused this problem, the Federation. And I never went to the media with that. You know, I just took the heat after we lost to Zambia. Um, I took the heat and, you know, that's about the time the media really turned and got very negative with me. And, um, and it's kind of just been ongoing since then, but I just bit my tongue. I took it. I said, I got bigger fish to fry. We got other things we need to focus on. You know, I'll just keep. So in my whole time there, I've never gone and said anything about the Federation to, to media or anybody else. Um, you know, where it would get out there publicly. I've always kind of just felt like I work for them. I have to, you know, try to work with them to get them to change what they're doing. But for me, I didn't feel like it was appropriate for me to be the one taking it out. But then we fast forward from this and because they didn't allow Tochi, they dismissed her from the team. Um, I have looked at probably seven different local goalkeepers in my tenure there. I've got a former goalkeeper of the Super Falcons on my staff. It's one of my assistants. I've got a goalkeeping coach on my staff and another Nigerian on my staff. And these were all recommendations by those coaches that I looked at and none have been good enough. I've got a third goalkeeper named Yawande that I brought in from the U.S. Um, from there. So that was Chimaka, Tochi and Yawande have been our three for two years. But in the meantime, I've been looking at other, when we'd have local camps, I would look at local keepers or I'd bring in a keeper when one of those keepers couldn't make it uh, to an event and hadn't found one that I felt like was in our top three. So finally after AFCON and after not having Tochi for many events, I kept fighting and fighting for her and um, finally got to a point where we convinced the GS uh, to allow her back, but she had to write a letter of apology which she did. And quite honestly, between you and I, she didn't have anything to apologize for, but she did. So the understanding was you bring her back, but if you want to use her, you're going to have to take a local goalkeeper to the world cup as a third keeper, because they want to develop a new young keeper because our goalkeepers are, you know, Tochi's getting older and Yawande was, is, is getting, you know, older as well. Uh, 20, 29, somewhere in there, I think. Um, and Tochi's 33 or 34. Um, but they're all still playing at a really good level. As you know, goalkeepers can play longer into their age anyway. So um, I didn't say anything about it then. I just thought I got Tochi back. I'll address this down the road, you know. But that was what they wanted to do. They wanted me to, if I was going to bring Tochi in, then I needed to bring in a, a local goalkeeper that they could develop. And my argument to them was always the World Cup is not the time to develop somebody. Take your best players to the World Cup. Then we can bring the young goalkeepers in after that, whether it's qualifying for the Olympics or even after the Olympics, you know, the following year, if you, if you didn't feel like they were ready. Um, so then we were supposed to have camp before the World Cup in Nigeria. We were supposed to have, I was promised three weeks of camp. So we were going to have the first week and a half was just going to be more local players. And I was going to have those local goalkeepers in that they wanted me to look at. Um, 
and which was the U20 goalkeeper, by the way, that they wanted me to look at. And I had seen, I, obviously I watched all the U20 World Cup games and I had seen her play, but I had never had her in camp. And then we were supposed to have, in those three weeks, we were also supposed to have about 10 more days where we brought all of the Super Falcons in. And anybody I picked from the local camp, I could mix into that 10 days and look at them together and then make the decision on the 23 that would fly to Australia. Well, right before, you know, we're getting ready to come to camp, they canceled the camp. They said, there's no money. We don't have the money to do this. We've got to book. And now FIFA makes us book airline tickets uh, for every player. Australia has to be business class instead of just coach. So it was expensive and they didn't have money. So at any rate, they canceled that camp after weeks of me fighting with them. And I could go into things on that, but I, I won't bore your, your, your listeners with all those details. But um, so when they asked for the list of 23, obviously I hadn't seen the U20 kid in a camp in person. So I picked the three keepers that I've had for two years. Well, they went ballistic and GS told me I couldn't do this. And we had an agreement. You were to take a U20. And I said, yes, but we also had an agreement that I'd have three weeks in camp. We're looking at it. You didn't end up, you didn't live up to your part of the deal. And so now I'm going to take the best players, you know, that I know. I said, can you imagine me taking a player to the World Cup that I've never seen before? Like, who would do that? Who in the world as a coach would do that? And um, so we went back and forth a few days. And finally, it got to a point where I said, look, it's in my contract that I pick my players. And immediately, not a day later, not hours later, immediately, as soon as I said that, he said, okay, you pick who you want then, but now Lauren Gregg can't come, which is my assistant. And she's the only one I really trust, you know, and obviously she's won a World Cup championship with the U.S. She's um, won an Olympic gold medal with the U.S. She's probably one of the best female coaches in the U.S., and probably around the world for that matter, and uh, brings a wealth of international experience. And I tried to understand, I said, what does she have to do with this? The staff, we shouldn't be talking about the staff. All we're talking about is a roster spot for a player. Like, so we've gone back and forth. He's fought me on it. We wouldn't, he wouldn't budge. He said, you can't take her. And um, so now I'm going into the World Cup shorthanded. I reached out to him, um, not this week, Monday, but a week, uh, two weeks ago on Monday, sent him an email because they won't answer my phone. They won't answer my text. Sent him and the president an email. Asked them to reconsider Lauren. And these are the reasons why. And basically apologized, which I didn't need to, but ap apologized to him for if he felt like I was going against a directive of taking the young player, I said, I apologize. That wasn't my intention. If we would have had camp, I could have seen her. And if she was good enough to be in your three, then I would take her, mm. right? It's competition. But I said, since I didn't see her is why I didn't take her. And I said, I hope someday you understand that. But basically I apologized to him for that. Haven't heard a word from them in okay. two weeks. No response. Send him another message on Friday of that same week saying, guys, would you please give me the courtesy of responding? Whatever the response is, because I'm trying to plan and prepare practices. Well, if I have Lauren, I can practice a certain way. I can yep. split things up because she knows how I work. If I don't have Lauren, I've got to do it myself because my Nigerian assistants, I haven't worked with enough. They don't know, they don't know me well enough, you know, and, and uh, to handle things the way I want. No response from Friday. Sent a text to the GS on Monday. No response to the text. So I've just finally gotten to a point where it's just like, okay, we're going with what we have. Um, the good news is I think our team is in a good place. They're in good spirits. They're unified. They're as together as we've ever been. So I feel good about that. Um, my issues with the Federation are my issues. We'll make sure when I get there, the team understands. Let's just focus on our job. It's, you know, has nothing to do with you. And uh, we'll do the best we can, you know, with it. Um, but I'm not going to um, be, be quiet anymore. You know, I'm, I'm going to let, let people know. Because the other side of this is I have a real close contact here in the U.S. that is very connected 
and on some of the boards at FIFA. Mm. This person told me that in October, every country was given $960,000 from FIFA to prepare for the World Cup. Where's that money? We got it. If Nigeria got it in October, why didn't we have a November? Why didn't we do a camp in November? Mm. You know, when we went to Japan in whatever that was, February, I think it was a February window or maybe it was the October window. I, I can't remember. But when we went to Japan, yeah, I think it was in October. Yeah. We flew in and we flew in and had a day rest and then played the game and then went home. Some of our players didn't arrive till the morning before the game. Wow. I think five players that were going to start for me arrived the night before the game. And the game was a four o'clock. Now they traveled 16 hours on a plane. Yeah, across the world. And we played Japan. <laughs> and then we go home. Like we wasted the last five days of that window to train. So all these questions I have is, where's this money? You know, and then the other thing I found out from my FIFA connection is that if countries don't have the money to buy uh, tickets, the the uh, business class tickets for everybody, FIFA would front that money and buy those tickets and then just deduct it from the monies that you get from FIFA mm -hmm. after the World Cup. So there's no excuse of saying well, we didn't have money to buy tickets so we couldn't have camp or whatever. So like, but these are things when I go back earlier to what I was saying to you, these are the kinds of things that the people in Nigeria don't question. In the U.S., that would be questioned. If the U.S. were going through the same things we're going through, the U.S. Soccer Federation would have to answer and mm. divulge the information going, wait, here's where the money was spent. Here's why we don't have the money or else you do have the money and you've got to take. But I mean, where does $960,000 go? Why aren't we prepared properly? FIFA also allows your staff to be your technical staff. They allow you to have up to 22 people. Well, we've only got about 11 wow. right, mm -hmm. on our staff. So if FIFA will pay and pay bonuses for up to 22 people, why don't we have 22 people? Why don't I have an analyst? Why don't I have scouts? Listen, the U.S. right now has scouts in Europe now watching teams play these exhibitions just in case they face them at the World Cup. We don't even have scouts going with us to Australia. Like, I don't have anybody to scout games, you know, if we were to get out of our group. I don't have anybody to scout games in our group. Everything I have to do is just through videos, hmm. you know, what I can pick up online. So it's like, to me, I look at it and go, well, if you're allowed 22, but you're only taking 11, I know Nigeria is going to want the bonus money that the staff gets. So are they going to list 10 other names mm. to give them 22 so they get that bonus money? Mm. Or are they going to just go, no, our staff is only going to be these 11 and that's all and not work. Like, I don't know that. I'm not accusing them of that. But in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking of it and going, why wouldn't you do what you're allowed you know, to do? Um, so I don't know. I mean, these are things that I just look at and I don't know. And I, I saw where the GS responded yesterday and kind of did some personal attacks on me after it came out of what I said um, yesterday in the podcast, the other podcast that I was on. Um, I guess when that hit the media, I saw the, I saw the response that GS kind of talked about, well, I'm just trying to set it up because I know I'm missing two players against Canada and I'm trying to set up failure and make excuses and all that in case we fail. And I'm like, well, you know, I mean, how, it just seems like a very childish, you know, response to it. He never really addressed, you know, and then they tried to say Lauren was, ill and that's why they didn't let her come mm -hmm. and what had happened in AFCON is she had not taken her the proper dosage of her um, blood pressure medication that's all it was so she got sick and they took her to the hospital that night and they ran tests and she was there for a day or so got her settled back in and she was fine mm. uh, even our own medical doctor on our staff 
said she's fine. There's no issues. There's no danger of her dying or anything like that. And um, they didn't let me have her for the next couple of camps for that reason. Then we talked them in like we did with Tochi of bringing her back. They required her, and I still have all the documentation. They required her through email to get a doctor's letter stating she's healthy to do this and getting a lawyer's letter saying that we would indemnify her or we would absolve them from any anything that would happen. Yeah. The Federation couldn't be held liable for it. Mm -hmm. And so we sent all of that paperwork in and she was back on board and everything was fine. Now all of a sudden, you know, two weeks before we're leaving, the Federation gets mad at me and and that's all it was, was pure retaliation. Because as soon as I said, I'm not changing, I'm not picking a goalkeeper I haven't seen, then it was an immediate, well, then you can't take Lauren. There mm -hmm. wasn't any, there wasn't any thought. It wasn't because it was medical. It was, it was because, so I've, they don't understand I've kept everything, documentation that I've had, every piece of correspondence we've had since I've, I've been the coach. So, um, you know, that's kind of their side of trying to, a, you know, make it look like it's not the way I, I brought it up, but there is even so much more out there that I could share with you. Uh, but this is kind of the, the, the big piece things that have, that have happened a little bit. I mean, all I can say is I, I can't wait to read your, your autobiography when it comes out, <laughs> when you, when you do your tell all in a, in a kind of couple of years. <laughs> I'm a good, good, uh, co-writer, somebody that writes and, and, and that's definitely Lauren and I have already, uh, decided that's, that's got, that's got to happen. Yeah. People would not believe what's gone on here. You know, we had similar issues when I was with Trinidad, but the issues with Trinidad and Tobago was just finances. They just didn't have money, mm. right? But at least I had Sheldon Phillips as my general secretary, and he worked his tail off trying to get us everything that we needed, you know? And he would say, what do you need? Hey, here's what I need. Well, we can't do it, Randy. We just don't have the money. How can we tweak it and get close to it? Like, at least they, the effort was there. Here, I have not had once... In the two and a half years I've been the coach, I've not had one time that the federations come to me and said, what do you need, coach? What do you need to succeed? Wow. Never, not mm. one single time um, have they ever come to, you know, to me and taken that approach. And you would think with the men not qualifying for the World Cup that they would want to put every resource available into the Super Falcons to do well. You know? And the good thing, hey, and the interesting thing in light of all of this, I think our players are going to do well. Like they are really ready for this. Um, look, we got a hard group. I think our group is the hardest in the tournament, to be honest with you. You know, you've got the Olympic defending Olympic gold medalist ranked 10th in the world. And you've got Australia, the host country and ranked fifth in the world. And, and, and Ireland is very good. They just played the U S twice, very, very close in two games. And I think they're ranked 22nd in the world. I, I would argue, make an argument that ours is the hardest group in the tournament, but I think we still have the belief we can get something out of it and find a way, you know, to get out of the group. Now, obviously we, things have to go well and we, we have to play well and, you know, maybe some calls go our way or you catch a team a little bit off or like whatever. And that's all football. Right. Uh, but I think the players are in a, in a really good spot. And I think we have some talent in, in this team. You know, we've got some, some really, really good players. So it's just disappointing. They haven't been supported the way they need to, uh, to really um, bring out everything that they have to offer. Yeah, definitely. And, and for those listening and watching, kind of thinking about what happened at the AFCON in terms of Nigeria, they got to the semifinal, played against Morocco. And I, I urge anyone who's listening or watching to look at the highlights of that game, because A, I don't think, to be honest, I don't think I've ever seen such an amazing slash intimidating atmosphere at a women's game anywhere in the world like the, the i mean i don't know what you think randy but that the yep. stadium was bouncing was. like sitting in the press yeah. box i couldn't hear the guy sitting next to me um yeah. and it just kind of yeah like you said you know obviously the result was disappointing but 
in terms of the way the players reacted in, in fighting through that atmosphere. And, you know, even, you know, it was so close. I remember that the Monday gift had that one shot right at the end when she hit the bar, that would have been the kind of the goal of the tournament and spectacular um, because yeah, yeah I, I don't know what you think, but in terms of both that and then that game in the final that I was at against Africa, the atmosphere was just kind of yeah. ludicrous. I remember speaking to Rosella Ian, who is a Moroccan player and she was kind of like, this is so hard because I can't even hear my teammates because that, that oh, is so yeah, loud yeah forty-five thousand in the stadium and it's packed and you couldn't hear yeah the players couldn't hear me from the sidelines um i'm sure they couldn't hear each other like she said on the field and and you know but i tell you what when you look at the african nations and i i, I think nigeria still has this mentality that because they've won so many african cup of nations that it's just their birthright to keep winning and it was like, to me, going into that event, to me, the goal was to qualify for the World Cup. If we won AFCON, that was just icing on the cake. Mm. You know, that was, you know, not that we didn't want to win AFCON, because we did, obviously. But the primary objective is to be playing in the World Cup. And, um, you know, so I, I think what they don't understand is Nigeria is not going to continue winning AFCONs. They're not going to continue even qualifying for a World Cup if they don't change the way they're doing business. When you look at, I don't know if you had a chance when you're in Morocco to go watch, look at the National Training Center. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That, national, their federate, that National Training Center is as good, if not better, than almost any I've seen around the world. Yeah. Even the one we have in the U.S. It's phenomenal. The investment that they're making into women's football. I said this back in... September the year before when I saw Morocco the first time, they're playing the best football, the best brand in all of Africa. They may not have quite the athletes all the way through that some of the other Africa that Ghana has or that we have or South Africa, but their, their brand of football is, is so they're, they're a country. Of course, we saw what their men did. They're a, they're a country that's invested and is going to get there. South Africa, even back when Vera, Vera was the coach, they started making an investment and now they're seeing the fruits of that investment with, you know, world cups and being the African champions and, and Nigeria has just set still and they just think we have so many players playing. We'll, we'll just right. pull them together and, and we'll win. And it, you know, I mean, the heat I'm taking now, wait till the next coach comes in that doesn't qualify for a world cup. Mm. Oh my God. You know, yep. um, but it's coming if they're not careful. You know, and a lot of people don't go and think back. We had two very, very difficult qualifying legs just to get to AFCON. Yeah. You know, advancing past Ghana, and according according to Asisat, we hadn't beat Ghana in the last two or three years. So advancing past Ghana and then against Ivory Coast, those are two of the top five African nations playing right now. They're both deserving to be in a World Cup. Like they, they would both do well in a world cup. So um, it's, we've, we've accomplished a lot considering all of the things that we've not done well. You know, the other piece of this that I also said is after AFCON and we had lost to Morocco and then didn't get the result with Zambia. Then we go on this trip and I've heard the Federation say, well, Randy's had more, international friendlies than any Nigeria coach before. They're better prepared. And, and that's right. We've had more matches and more windows that we've been active than, than coaches before me. The thing about an international window is they're usually 10 days. And if you play two games, then you have very few days to train because of travel and then day before game and day after game. In some of those windows, you play three. So you have no training time. So we'll get games, but we don't train. But the other side of this is then instead of asking me after AFCON, okay, we know we're going to the World Cup. Let's put a plan in place between AFCON now and the World Cup. Let's plan out our international windows. Where are we going? Who do we need to play? We have our draw. We, we kind of know the type teams we're going to play. We never sat down one time. I tried to do it. I tried to get them to communicate with me. So instead, they go to countries where countries will help them offset the, the cost. Hmm. So we come to the U.S. after losing twice in um, AFCON, then we go to Canada, and we play Canada twice. 
you know, and my question is why? Let's go play Canada because we want to play top teams, but then let's pick up a team l less. Yeah. So we can start to build our confidence back up, right? But we don't. We go play Canada twice. We lose and we get a, a, dry, a draw. Then we go to Japan. And we go in and we have 16 hours and no rest. We play again. We come home. We lost 2 0, but, but we lost 2 0 with a free kick and a penalty kick in a span of two minutes in the second half. Other than that, we were good on the day. Hmm. Um, and, and then we lose that window, right? So now we play Canada twice, Japan once. Then we come to the U.S. and we play the U.S. twice. Why? Play the U.S. once, play another team. Like we should have built with games. Of, of teams that we can start to build our confidence back up, you know, as, as a team. We go to Mexico. I'm happy that we got the window. We got three games, three good games there with Mexico, Colombia, and Costa Rica. But in reality, none of those three teams play anything like Canada. Australia or, or Australia Ireland. Or Ireland. <laughs> like, why weren't we in Europe playing some teams that play like the group teams will play uh, in our group? So there wasn't much thought. And so then the more media comes in, well, he's the, he loses more games than anybody, you know, any coach in Africa has lost or whatever. Well, yeah, because we played, you know, the U.S. since my tenure three times. We mm -hmm. played Canada twice. Like most countries in the world would have lost against Canada, the U.S., and Japan. Mm -hmm. Those are three of the top teams in the world, unless you're England or unless you're maybe the Dutch or France or Germany. Uh, or Spain, you're probably losing those games just like we did. You know, those are, that's the difference of the gap of the top of the world and the rest of the world, you know? So I, I don't know. It, it's just, there's so many things that we did wrong. Um, but I had no input in it, you know, and that's the disappointing thing is we didn't do this properly. And I guess the the bottom line is these players deserve more. They deserve better, you know, and, and at the end of the day, that's what keeps me going are, are the players. Uh, otherwise I would have walked away from this a long time ago, you know, but it's just, you see the players and what they give up and what little they have and understanding every dollar that they can get is important to them. Um, you know, it just makes you want to fight and continue on for those, those players. Yeah, absolutely. Coach, I just have one last question. I really appreciate all the time you've given yeah. us. But I mean, well, you just looking ahead to the World Cup, obviously, like we said, you know, you probably are in the group of death with, you know, Australia, Canada and, and Ireland. And it's and especially now that the World Cup's gone to a 32 team format, it's only the top two, whereas, you know, previous World Cups, you know, you could squeeze in as a third best uh, third place team, yeah. you know, for you kind of given all of the chaos and the kind of tribulations that have happened over the last kind of year or two years, you know, how, how do you as a coach and your players, once you get to Australia, block out all that noise and kind of say, yeah. look, we got 10 days to prepare. Look, we should have had 30, but we got yeah. this time, you know, how do you just zone into yeah. that, that, that tournament? Cause that's ultimately why you're here. That's, you know, that's why you've come in. That's why these players are here it's for that that's world right. cup. How do you zone yeah. in on that? Yeah, I think we take exactly what you said. When I when I come in the first, you know, the first time we meet on the first day, uh, we've got to uh, let them understand, you know, I've got to keep, they're in a really good place mentally and feeling confident. After our trip to Turkey and, you know, with a good result against New Zealand and, and Haiti there and the team playing well, um, that probably was the best chemistry and the best group together in that, Turkey uh, trip in the last window that we've had probably ever. And um, so I think that was a, that was a good way to end the last window before we come into the world cup. So I'll have to make them understand. Don't pay attention. Don't listen to the negativity. Let's don't look at what we don't have or what we should have had. Let's take these 10 days and let's just focus on the job at hand and get them to understand that I believe in them, that we can still get this done and I think they have that belief they can get it done. And, and let's build on that. You know, I think it's, I, I'm not going to come in there and harp on all the issues that's going on now with me and the Federation and with the players and, and whatever. I don't know how much they read and 
hear it. I'm, I'm sure they, they're well aware of what's going on. But at the end of the day, I do believe in it. I do believe that we have enough talent. And look, we've got 10 days. we got to figure it out. You know, we've got to put the best thing in place that we can for Canada and um, as, in that opening match. And so I'll have to just make sure that they understand kind of like this us against the world mentality, you know, like regardless of what's out there being said, regardless of lack of support by your own federal, whatever, put that aside. Let's go do all of this for each other. You know, let's, let's fight for each other and take this as far as we can. Absolutely. So that'll, that'll be the message. Yeah. And I mean, I, I do, I do not envy the position that you're in um, coach, but thank you so much for, for coming to talk to us. You know, we, Honestly, yeah, it's, it's, it sounds like it's been a really tough year for you and, and more so for Lauren as well uh, and for the players. But, you know, we're, uh, you know, as a very biased media organization that supports African countries and teams, we are very much behind you and, and kind of cannot wait to be staying up till I think it'll be like 2.30 in the morning here to, to watch the games. Uh, but yeah. coach, thank you so much for, for joining us. You bet. Thanks for having me.